The Art of Hiding by J. M. Orbit. Chapter 18. Come Back A crimson feeling of amber-red seeping through the eyelids. Sensations of warmth, of energy, of comfort, and then to black. A dream of indigo followed. There was no image of an object, no indigo skies or indigo seas, just a wash of even colour all around. An indigo bubble. A sense of peace and serenity and relaxation. A feeling of nothing in the world matters. A body tingling. Muscles being charged with energy. So this is death, thought Nan. It's not so bad after all, you know. And then everything faded back to black. Sunlight now, blazing through her eyelids like the force of life itself. Nan's eyes opened as far as a painful squint while they adjusted to the light. So I'm not dead, after all? There were images of Tristan, Hartley, her father, and even her mother, all peering down and smiling at her with looks of concern in their eyes. Some of them were saying something to her, but Nan could not hear a word. She knew it had to be a dream, though, because her mother could not possibly be in Wanish Limply, and her father was still too ill. The surroundings were familiar as well a room with a couch by a window overlooking the sea, a light breeze blowing through a door. Nan closed her eyes and dreamt a different dream. Voices getting louder, as if rushing towards her. Nan recognised them as her mother's and her father's. And please don't think of making it an issue, Russell, as if Nan's condition wasn't proof that children should be back with me in Botcher Street. I now have legal custody of them too. I understand that, M, and I won't contest it, but I feel the children should be allowed to decide where they want to live for themselves. I understand that both Nan and Tristan have made friends here. Oh, whom they may see every holiday. Besides, they have friends at home as well. Please, just ask them, Emma, pleaded Russell. Ask them where they want to live, and if they say Botcher Street, I shall never argue the point again. Ask them. As you no doubt asked them when you whisked them off to Wanish Limpley and decided their future in a day, when you took my children away from me and gave me no choice but to go with you. Yes, I behaved badly, I know, but I've changed them. Oh, spare me, Russell. How many times have I heard? Her parents' voices fell away into silence. Nan had heard the argument or something similar a hundred times before, and she did not want to hear it again. She embraced sleep. The sound of surf breaking upon rocks somewhere below the window. The low, soft toning of wind chimes close by. The high whistle of the wind among some distant trees or bushes. The call of a gull or two. Nan drank these noises in as if they were a medicine and a music and a massage for her brain in one dose. She could lose herself in these sounds and be comforted by them. Yet Nan could also detect that there was a silence nearby. 
It was the absence of sound people make when they're trying to be quiet. Something about it alarmed Nan, and she heaved her eyelids open. Once again, she found the light painful at first, but after a few moments of adjustment, Nan saw that Uncle Adrian and Cat Sanderson were seated close by. On seeing Nan peering at them, both caretakers smiled with relief, and Cat Sanderson got up to leave. D don't go, croaked Nan, her voice a little rusty. Cat paused and then sat down again. How are you feeling, Nan? Adrian asked in a deep, gentle voice. Scatter all over the place, Uncle, Nan replied after her third attempt at speaking. Adrian nodded and placed a hand on her forehead to stop Nan trying to get up. Where? In my house, on the island. Rest for now, Nan, Adrian said in something just above a whisper. You've been asleep for a long time. Wait until you get your strength back. Nan lay back. How long? Adrian paused and blinked rapidly before answering. You've been out for about three weeks? Nan mouthed three weeks with wonder and then spoke again. He didn't get you then, Uncle. You weren't hurt. Tried to stop him. I know, Nan. And I thank you for it. It's possibly the most foolish and most courageous thing I have ever witnessed. It seems my family have more metal than even the white boy realised. What happened? Wait until you get your strength back. What happened to me? Adrian stared through Nan for a moment to select his next words. This is the point at which I have to ask you for forgiveness, Nan. Adrian took out his palette knife and for a moment or two concentrated on scraping away the paint stones on his coat. Do you remember receiving a photograph of me? Of Mum and me? I never sent it. After the murder of Templeton Likely, it seems the white boy found himself trapped here in my house. We knew he was running scared, but for some reason unknown to us, he did not attack me, but fled through one of his pictures I have on my wall. This picture was a gateway canvas to your old home, but he would have perished it if he'd stayed out of the canvas for so long. So it's our belief, and you have to understand that this is all conjecture and guesswork, but it is our belief that using sketches I have for reference, once there he focused himself into a tiny dynamic picture, so accurate in execution anyone would have mistaken it for a photograph. The photograph of you and your mother. He was... In the picture? Yes and no, Nan. When you picked up the picture, the white boy was within it, but he must have leapt into you. The white boy was in you, Nan. Adrian gave his niece a moment for that thought to sink in. We want you to know that we had no idea he had possessed you. It has never been recorded that he has ever used a person as he does a canvas. It never even occurred to us. Nevertheless, he was within you, Nan. For some little while, Nan remained silent. The nightmares were his, then, she murmured at last. Nightmares? And messages. Messages? What messages, Nan? Before we came here, saw messages in the patterns of birds, stars. Help us. Where are you? Messages. Hmm. They were almost certainly from the sisters to the white boy, explained Captain Sanderson softly. They share a bond that goes beyond anything known to humans. 
When he summons the sisters, it is as if the entire world calls them, directs them to him. The waves on the sea, the wind on the grass, the swirl of fallen leaves, everything. The bond goes both ways, and they can call to him too. But the conquistadors? The knight? Why send him to kill me if the white boy was... you know? asked Nan. It's my guess that whoever sent the conquistadors, and I'm still not convinced it was the sisters, but whoever sent them did it in order to hurt Adrian by murdering his closest family. Cat replied. I'm certain they had no idea about the white boy inhabiting you. Certainly the sisters would not risk harming him. But the knight didn't kill me in Shakespeare's theatre, Nan said. He could have. No. It's my belief that the conquistadors' attack on your home and the crusaders' attack in Norbert's rooms were attempts to kill you. Their appearance in Shakespeare's Globe was an attempt to abduct you and bring you and him back to the sisters. Only when you launched yourself at the sister during their attack on the Pilchard did they first understand the white boy was within you, Nan. Cat rocked her head to one side. Oh, that's my theory. Nan understood. She did not want to dwell on the idea that she had been merely a shell or a haunt or a hidey-hole for the white boy. The thought was horrific and humiliating. Yet she could not deny that there was an emptiness within her and a desperate craving to think on other subjects. How do you escape him, Uncle? Well, there are a few of us, and I really mean Cat, Norbert and myself, who guessed that the white boy was receiving help from someone within the communities, and so we set a trap. I was to be left conspicuously alone and vulnerable, and people were to know of it. The canvas you saw me walk into is a gateway canvas created to look like a dynamic world. We designed it to transport me out to another nearby location, but transport, whoever, followed to a locked, secure canvas from out of which no one was supposed to escape. We had no idea we would catch a fish as big as the white boy himself. You have him then? He's trapped then? Adrian bowed his head. Alas, no. Once more he reminded us that it was he who made the canvas, and he who knows far more about it than any of us. The boy tore apart the gateway canvas and lashed out in rage, before fleeing to some other world. We cannot find him. I apologise to you for a second time. We both do, Cat Sanderson added. Nan was silent for a moment. And I'm sorry for my behaviour towards you both. Especially you, Cat. Nan sighed deeply before continuing. <sighs> Forgive me. Don't know why I said those things. Nan, there's nothing to forgive, replied Cat Sanderson. You have endured what none of us have ever known. I think we can allow you the leeway of a few short words with us. Rest now. Yes, I will, replied Nan, her chest heaving with the effort of speech. At least I won't have his nightmares. Almost pity him for his nightmares. Having made friends with Cat and Adrian, Nan fell back into a deep, satisfying sleep that held no dreams at all. Later that day, Emma Elliot came to visit, and with her mother's help, Nan managed to manoeuvre herself into a wheelchair. Now, there's no need to tell me what happened. Dr Beamish and Adrian have explained everything, and I'm under strict instructions not to tire you out declared her mother, to Nan's utter astonishment. 
No one goes bivouacking in February, Nan. It's far too early in the year to sleep out in the open, and I've already told off Tristan and your father for allowing you to do so. It's no wonder you caught pneumonia. Oh, is that what I have? Pneumonia? asked Nan, quickly catching on that her mother had been told nothing about the white boy, and therefore probably nothing about the canvas either. And they told you? Oh, I suppose you've only just come round. Yes, sweetheart. I'm afraid you caught influenza, which then led on to pneumonia. But Dr Beamish assures me you'll be fine now. There was a sudden scrabbling at the door, and in rushed Adrian, Norbert and Russell, all panting hard, panic glinting in their eyes. Emma, you, uh, you promised us you uh, wouldn't visit Nan until this evening, said Norbert with alarm. Yes, I know, but she's my daughter. No one will dictate to me when I can see her. It's all right, Uncle, Nan assured them. Mum's told me about my flu and pneumonia, and I'm sorry I went camping without telling you, Dad. Russell, you told me you knew about their camping trip, inquired Emma. Dad's just trying to cover up for us, Mum, Nan informed her mother. Tristan and I disobeyed him. Emma looked slightly abashed, and she lowered the angry gaze at her husband. Well, you should have known better than to copy your brother, Nan. She admonished her daughter. You know Tristan's got the constitution of a tank. Now, if it's all right with you, gentlemen, I'd like to take my daughter out for a walk, if it's allowed. The three men moved out of the way and the relief flooded their faces. They understood that Nan had not given away the secret to her mother. Adrian even managed to mouth a furtive thank you to Nan as she was wheeled past. It was a bumpy ride in the wheelchair as Emma pushed her daughter along the cliffs heading in the direction of Dab Harbour town and Wanish Limpley. Although Dab Harbour Town was largely the same, there was no Wanish Limpley to be seen. The great barrier canvas covering the town and half the island only showed a craggy hostile coastline on the mainland, with no trace of the causeway. Clinging to the last vestiges of rocky mainland were a collection of ugly houses and a rusting corrugated tin shack that no tourist would ever choose to visit. The island's got some lovely buildings and views granted. But why would anyone want to live over there? asked her mother, pointing to the canvas version of Wanish Limpley. Oh, I don't know, Mum, replied Nan. You're not seeing it at its best. It has its own secret charm. Nan was also intrigued to discover that as her mother pushed her into the great barrier canvas, the only indication of the threshold from one world to another was a feeling like a slight gust of wind. Emma did not even seem to notice the sensation. Settling Nan in her wheelchair on the little outcrop of rock overlooking the east side of the bay, Emma Elliot opened a thermos flask full of hot chocolate and poured her daughter a cup. It was amazing how warm, familiar drink could make a person feel so at peace. The chocolate seemed to hunt down the cold, forgotten places within her body and coax them back to life and health. Her mother was right. There was precious little to look at in the direction of Wanish, so Nan gazed out over the waters and tried to work out the route the myriad had taken when it had first brought them to this place. Leaving the past few weeks aside, have you enjoyed yourself here, Nan? her mother asked. It's been extraordinary, Nan replied, but I wouldn't say it's always been enjoyable. Emma nodded and supped some more hot chocolate. Now she had a daughter to herself. Whatever Emma had intended to say had fled, and the words would not come when she most had the need of them. How are things, Mum? Have you settled into Botcher Street? Four days in. Four days, and it felt as if I'd never left the place. Aunt India bossing you around? 
<laughs> no, though she is here with me now. She's installed herself in Dab Island Hotel. Oh, I see. And uh, how are Grandma and Grandpa? Fine. Canada? Persia? Both fine, as are the dogs. Brandy did cut a leg open recently when Grandpa's dog cart finally disintegrated. The wound's healed now, but you would have thought the neighbours had shot the dog dead with the fuss Grandpa was making over her. We were all commanded to tiptoe around Botcher Street for three days to allow Brandy to get enough rest. Grandpa's rebuilt the cart since. Oh yeah, and how's Uncle Beaumont? No change, Emma replied. And work? No change either. Mother and daughter then lapsed into silence. Emma refilled Nan's cup with chocolate and busied herself with a bag behind the wheelchair. Nan gazed upwards and wondered what type of weather pattern produces three different types of cloud all in the one sky. Brushing the top of the atmosphere were high, flat, wispy affairs. Below them were bulging, puffy, almost solid creations, the kind faces and fantastic shapes could be found in, and at the lowest level was a large, blurred, smudgeless shape of a cloud. The weather could not decide what to wear that day, so it put on everything it possessed. I've brought something for you, said Emma, stowing away the flask and bringing out a bag that she'd hooked over the arms of the wheelchair. Do you remember the last night we shared before you left here to come with your father, watching Grandpa on his dog cart, putting Tristan to bed, talking so long into the evening we couldn't even see each other's faces? Remember? I thought you might like to see some of the Bedlam trio's gear. Not the photographs, you'd have to come back for those, but some of their stuff. They were magpies when it came to collecting. Well, anything, really. I've brought some of the items. Emma reached inside the bag and produced a photograph of a sword that had been broken in two. That's not Callum's sword, she explained. Uncle Wilson snapped his own sword after Callum's funeral. There were also some pen knives, torches, catapults, drinking bottles, a camera, as well as sticks of wood that had been whittled into wooden stakes with clumsy attempts at carving decorative handles. Nan frowned and held up the sticks to her mother. In case of vampires, said Emma. There was even a piece of scrolled up paper with the triangular sign of the Bedlam trio written in what appeared to be dried blood. Nan understood what her mother was trying to do. Emma could not have known that as Nan was coming round she'd overheard the conversation between her mother and father and therefore knew that Emma wanted to take her children back home to Botcher Street. Now the night before they had left to head off to Wanish Limpley had been the time that mother and daughter had felt closest for a long while. By bringing these articles of the Bedlam trio, Emma was trying to evoke the closeness they had felt that night and to make it harder for Nan to resist returning to Botcher Street. After a few minutes' talk about the Bedlam trio, mother and daughter began to make their way back round the island. Once again, Nan noticed that her mother seemed to be oblivious to the sensations of emerging from the canvas. You're never going to come back to Dad, are you, Mum? Emma was taken aback for a moment before she realised her ruse had been rumbled by her daughter. I might, she said, and then added after a pause, I don't know. But you want the boys and me to come back to Botcher Street, don't you? Nan asked. More than anything. Could you bear that thought, Nan? Nan peered up into the sky and saw that a large smudge of a cloud had won the day by enveloping the others. The weather had made up its mind after all and at that moment she envied it for having made a decision. Suddenly, a faint cry drifted over the island. The sisters! The sisters are in Sequoia Tree Square! It met with very little response on the eastern side of the island, because Nan and her mother were the only souls around. 
Nan offered up a quick, silent plea for the safety of Tristan Hartley and her father, and then felt guilty for not including the rest of the community in her thoughts. The sisters? Emma asked her daughter as a bell started to toll. Troublesome locals, Nan replied. I understand. My own sisters produced similar levels of alarm in people. Of course, Emma had no reason to understand the gravity of the situation. How could she know the nature of the white boy's creatures? They continued on towards the theatre, although Nan longed to head in the opposite direction. She was desperate to duck under the great canvas and at least try to gain some sense about what was happening in the Sequoia Tree Square. Fast, heavy footfalls on the path ahead announced the presence before they saw him. Then the tall, gangly form of Moulton Shoreditch came into view as he rounded an outcrop of rock. His pace slowed for a stride or two when he noticed Nan, and then he flashed a smile of recognition and skewed off the path, his tetch scything away through the gorse to the gateway beneath the great canvas. Nan wanted to shout out that he'd forgotten his parachute, but Moulton had disappeared by the time she remembered. Hmm, where's he gone then? asked Emma, gazing at the gorse thicket for a trace of the caretaker. False perspective, Mum, exclaimed Nan. Everything's further away than it looks. You must have missed him. Emma accepted the explanation, shrugged and trundled her daughter towards home. Before they reached Adrian's house, they passed the impressive Dab Island Hotel. It lay a little way up the summit hill and overlooked the theatre, as well as the small, picturesque cliff-top village called Janna's Key, and, further down, the lighthouse standing over the waters and jagged fins of rock to the south of Dab. Maybe it was the veranda, but the hotel looked as though it belonged in hotter climes of mosquito nets and ceiling fans, having a touch of the Jamaican plantation house or an oriental outpost of the empire to it. Her mother and Aunt India were staying there for a moment, but, due to a general lack of visitors in early spring, Nan found a hotel without guests as eerie as a school without children. The theatre unnerved Nan even more. Sensations of what happened to her the last time she'd entered the building returned in sharp bursts of memory, and she was not sorry when her mother pushed on past and headed north. When Nan returned to Uncle Adrian's cottage, it was to find Shelley Fordsley and Wilton Harbinger waiting for her. To Nan's surprise, both friends embraced her and introduced themselves to her mother in a most formal manner. Don't take this the wrong way, and I am pleased to meet you, but can I ask that you don't stay too long as Nan should get some rest, said Emma, helping her daughter back into bed and tucking a blanket around her. I'm sure you understand. Oh, we understand perfectly, Mrs Elliot, Wilton replied, using his hypnotic voice to its best advantage. We should have kept away until Nan was quite fit and well again, but we couldn't help ourselves. Nan is very important to us. We're only here to show Nan that we haven't forgotten her, exclaimed Shelley, and to make sure she hasn't forgotten us. Oh, that's nice, said Miss Elliot, in an unconvincing way. I'll be off then. You don't want your mother mooching around with your friends here. Emma made sure her daughter wanted for nothing and left with the reassurance that she would be back later. Does your mother know about the secret? You know, the living canvas? asked Wilton. No, replied Nan. Probably for the best. So what does she think happened to you then? About a pneumonia after sleeping out in the open. Why? What do you think happened to me? <laughs> well, we know, Nan. Everybody knows, said Shelley. The caretakers tried to keep it quiet, but by the next morning even the fishermen who'd been out at sea that night were talking about it, and most of them were about as talkative as a cobblestone. You've gained a special status in Dublin One-ish, exclaimed Wilton, but I'm not sure whether it's a good or a bad thing. Some people may be frightened of you, you know. But not us, your friends, declared Shelley. 
There had been times before when Nan had begun to find their company as cloying as she found it now. She was also far from keen to be interrogated about the white boy's possession of her, and seeing that the conversation might be tacking in that direction, Nan changed the subject. Do you know what's happened with the sisters? Mm, no idea. We're in a hotel and we heard the alarm. We're not tempted to take a look, said Shelley. There have been a couple of attacks by the sisters since you've been out of the picture, exclaimed Wilton. People are beginning to become scared. They've returned then, sighed Nan. Returned and making up for lost time or lost opportunities, Wilton added. For some reason, Nan felt partly to blame, but she'd not allow herself to stew upon a situation over which she had no control. Tell me all the news then. I'm sure I've so much to catch up on. Well, it's begun, declared Shelley. Wilton dug Shelley in the ribs with an elbow, causing her to flinch with pain. There was a hostility in his eyes that Nan found alarming, ugly even. What's begun? asked Nan. Wilson removed his gaze from Shelley and levelled it at Nan. Tensions between Dobb and Wanish, that's all, he replied. What's begun then? Haven't there always been tensions between them? But these are leading somewhere. Where? You see, Nan, there's a group of people who want to make Dab Island and Wanish Limpley separate communities, with their own governments and security arrangements and all that, even perhaps dismantle the causeway so that the two communities do not have a physical link. Why would they want to do that? asked Nan. Perhaps they're sick of the attacks, Nan. Maybe they're tired of living in fear. But how would that change? Neither Wilton nor Shelley offered an answer. How would that change? repeated Nan. Anyway, there's some talk about this ridiculous new game, began Shelley, as if Nan had ever asked the question. I think your brother's had a hand in it. Hmm, it looks like a miniature version of absolute chaos, but with even fewer rules, said Wilton. Imagine a riot and you're pretty close to the spirit of the dumb game. Dumb? echoed a voice Nan knew best of all. A small group of people, including Luke Lucas, Toby Croucher and Cayman Pike, were crowded around the doorway with Tristan at their head. Dumb is people who can't speak, which is pretty much what I might wish upon you, Wilt. I pity you for not seeing the simple charm in the game, and I pardon you for the insult. In less than 20 seconds, Shelley and Wilton had made their excuses to Nan, brushed past Tristan and were out of Adrian's cottage. Ugh! Tragic, Nan. When are you going to stop acting the loon and come to your senses about those tedious couple of pillocks? You're far better off without them. I'm better, Trist. Thanks for asking. Tristan grinned and hugged his sister with something close to gentle tenderness. It's good to see you, Nanny. And you, Trist. I'm assuming that if you're here, I've no need to be worried about Hartley and Dad? Both safe, Tristan replied. How are you really feeling? asked Toby, as he bounded up to greet Nan with Cayman in his wake. That must have been one hell of an experience. Never heard of the like of that before. The white boy using someone like a canvas? Now that's just wrong. Caused quite a stir in Wanish, didn't it, Cayman? Of course, a seagull farts and it causes quite a stir in Wanish these days. Dab Island will claim the seagull, but they'll say we can have the fart, bless them. G'day, Nan, Luke Lucas greeted her. Here you had a bit of a blue with the white fella. Still feeling a bit crook? Better, thanks. It's good of you to come and see me, sir. Phew, don't call me sir, Nan, or I'll keep looking for my father. Anyway, got to keep a good running back like you, sweet, haven't I? Replied the games teacher with a wink. So, have you missed us? Asked Toby. Hmm, not really been conscious enough to miss anybody, Toby, replied Nan. Have you missed me? Course, girl. Cayman? For sure. 
It took no time at all for Nan to renew her friendship with Toby and Cayman. Nothing to say sorry for, Nan, exclaimed Toby. You see, now that we know what happened to you, we don't take it as you being crabby with us, but the white boy, don't we, Cayman? It was the white boy who said those things, Nan. It was the white boy who owes us the apology, not you. I expect there's some flowers and a card for him waiting for us back in the pilchard. <laughs> no, Nan, we don't hold it against you. That'd be like blaming the doll for what the ventriloquist said. I mean, I'm not saying you were a doll, Nan, just that, well, it was sort of similar. Cayman came to his friend's rescue. Anyway, kind of nice to know the wee white fella doesn't rate us. <laughs> Feel better for it. Nan flashed a smile of gratitude at Cayman. What's the news from the square, she asked. All of them went silent. It's over, declared Luke Lucas, and the results might have been worse. The caretakers defended well, some casualties, no deaths, sisters gone. Good result. Good result, exclaimed Nan. Yeah, as good as we could have hoped for with the team they're fielding. What was it like then, Nan? began Tristan. It goes a long way to explaining your behaviour, but what was it like when you came out through your skin? Savagely painful, I'm reckoning, and pain and me are on first-name terms and all. It was no picnic, Trist, replied Nan. She'd been dreading the question, because she was both too tired to address it and did not know the answer anyway, having not had enough time or enough inclination to consider it herself. Tell me about this game you've invented. Sport, Nan. Not a game, a sport, corrected Luke Lucas. Yeah, agreed Tristan with the utmost solemnity. Luke and I were trying to think up something we could teach the conquistadors and crusaders. You know, keep that mischief. Seem criminal to let such flair, cunning and ruthless brutality go to waste, added the games teacher. Had to be simple though, or they'd never understand it and we'd have to explain the whole thing over to them every time we played. So we came up with an idea, still working on it, but we've called it Lacoche. Lacoche, repeated Nan. Yeah, we thought a foreign name might make it sound more, uh, you know, sophisticated and exotic than it actually is, exclaimed Tristan. And as you know, the La is for feminine nouns in French. Luke Lucas informed her, which we believe makes the game sound less physical than it really is. Nan had an inkling that physical did not even cover half the truth of how punishing the cosh might actually be. Tristan and Luke Lucas continued to talk on, with Toby and even Cayman chipping in the odd comment. Nan watched their mouths move. She smiled and nodded every so often, but her mind was fixed upon the pale figures that terrorised the communities. It was too difficult to concentrate on any other topic for long. The white boy had robbed her of even that distraction. In her mind, Nan summoned these creatures to stand before her. These imaginary sisters loomed over the boys and the games teachers. The imaginary white boy stood just feet away, but it was hard to clearly make out the features of his face. They might have stopped by to chat and learn about Lacoche. Then the wind tugged at them, and the white boy and the sisters began to disintegrate a stream of white particles drifting out through the open window, the millions of molecules exiled to the elements, and for a short while, Nan's sight was without white. Mm -hmm.